Chapter 18 of The Moon Pool by Abraham Merritt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Moon Pool. Chapter 18 The Amphitheater of Jet. For hours the black haired folk had been streaming across the bridges, flowing along the promenade by scores and by hundreds, drifting down toward the gigantic seven terrace temple whose interior I had never as yet seen, and from whose towering exterior, indeed, I had always been kept far enough away, unobtrusively, but none the less decisively, to prevent any real observation. The structure, I had estimated nevertheless, could not reach less than a thousand feet above its silvery base, and the diameter of its circular foundation was about the same. I wondered what was bringing the Ladala into Lora and where they were vanishing. All of them were flower-crowned with the luminous, lovely blooms, old and young, slender, mocking-eyed girls, dwarfed youths, mothers with their babes, gnomed oldsters. On they poured, silent for the most part, and sullen, a sullenness that held acid bitterness even as their subtle, half-sinister, half-gay malice seemed tempered into little keen-edged flames oddly, menacingly defiant. There were many of the green-clad soldiers along the way, and the garrison of the only bridge-span I could see had certainly been doubled. Wondering still, I turned from my point of observation and made my way back to our pavilion, hoping that Larry, who had been with Yolara for the past two hours, had returned. Hardly had I reached it before Rador came hurrying up in his manner a curious exultance mingled with what in anyone else I would have called a decided nervousness. "'Come,' he commanded before I could speak, "'the Council has made decision, and Larry is awaiting you.' "'What has been decided?' I panted as we sped along the mosaic path that led to the house of Yolara. "'And why is Larry awaiting me?' And at his answer I felt my heart pause in its beat and through me race a wave of mingled panic and eagerness. "'The Shining One dances,' had answered the green dwarf. "'And you are to worship!' What was this dancing of the Shining One, of which so often he had spoken? Whatever my forebodings, Larry evidently had none. "'Great stuff!' he cried, when we had met in the great antechamber now empty of the dwarfs. Hoping it'd be worth seeing. Have to be something damned good, though, to catch me, after what I've seen of shows at the front," he added. And remembering, with a little shock of apprehension, that he had no knowledge of the dweller beyond my poor description of it, for there are no words actually to describe what that miracle of interwoven glory and horror was, I wondered what Larry O'Keefe would say and do when he did behold it. Rador began to show impatience. "'Come!' he urged. "'There is much to be done, and the time grows short.' He led us to a tiny fountain-room in whose miniature pool the white waters were concentrated, pearl-like and opalescent in their circling rim. "'Bathe!' he commanded, and set the example by stripping himself and plunging within. Only a minute or two did the green dwarf allow us and he checked us as we were about to don our clothing. 
Then, to my intense embarrassment, without warning, two of the black-haired girls entered, bearing robes of a peculiar dull blue hue. At our manifest discomfort Rador's laughter roared out. He took the garments from the pair, motioned them to leave us, and, still laughing, threw one around me. Its texture was soft, but decidedly metallic, like some blue metal spun to the fineness of a spider's thread. The garment buckled tightly at the throat, was girdled at the waist, and below this cincture fell to the floor, its folds being held together by a half-dozen looped cords. From the shoulders a hood resembling a monk's cowl. Rador cast this over my head. It completely covered my face, but was of so transparent a texture that I could see, though somewhat mistily, through it. Finally he handed us both a pair of long gloves of the same material, and high stockings, the feet of which were gloved, five-toed. And again his laughter rang out at our manifest surprise. The priestess of the Shining One does not altogether trust the Shining One's voice, he said at last. And these are to guard against any sudden errors. And fear not, Goodwin, he went on kindly. Not for the Shining One itself would your Lara see harm come to Larry here, nor, because of him, to you. But I would not stake much on the Great White One and for him I am sorry, for him I do like well." "'Is he to be with us?' asked Larry eagerly. "'He is to be where we go,' replied the dwarf soberly. Grimly Larry reached down and drew from his uniform his automatic. He popped a fresh clip into the pocket-fold of his girdle. The pistol he slung high up beneath his armpit. The green dwarf looked at the weapon curiously. O'Keefe tapped it. "'This,' said Larry, "'slays quicker than the Keth. I take it so no harm shall come to the blue-eyed one, whose name is Olaf. If I should raise it, be you not in its way, Rador,' he added significantly. The dwarf nodded again, his eyes sparkling. He thrust a hand out to both of us. "'A change comes,' he said. What it is I know not, nor how it will fall. But this remember, Rador is more friend to you than you yet can know. And now let us go," he ended abruptly. He led us, not through the entrance, but into a sloping passage ending in a blind wall, touched a symbol graven there, and it opened, precisely as had the rosy barrier of the moon-pool chamber. And, just as there, but far smaller, was a passage-end, a low curved wall facing a shaft, not black as had been that abode of living darkness, but faintly luminescent. Rador leaned over the wall. The mechanism clicked and started. The door swung shut, the sides of the car slipped into place, and we swept swiftly down the passage. Overhead the wind whistled. In a few moments the moving platform began to slow down. It stopped in a closed chamber no larger than itself. Rador drew his poniard and struck twice upon the wall with its hilt. Immediately a panel moved away, revealing a space filled with a faint, misty blue radiance. 
and at each side of the open portal stood four of the dwarfish men, gray-headed, old, clad in flowing garments of white, each pointing toward us a short silver rod. Rador drew from his girdle a ring and held it out to the first dwarf. He examined it, handed it to the one beside him, and not until each had inspected the ring did they lower their curious weapons. Containers of that terrific energy they called the Keth, I thought, and later was to know that I had been right. We stepped out. The doors closed behind us. The place was weird enough. Its pave was a greenish-blue stone resembling lapis lazuli. On each side were high pedestals holding carved figures of the same material. There were perhaps a score of these, but in the mistiness I could not make out their outlines. A droning, rushing roar beat upon our ears, filled the whole cavern. "'I smell the sea,' said Larry suddenly. The roaring became deep-toned, clamorous, and close in front of us a rift opened. Twenty feet in width, it cut the cavern floor and vanished into the blue mist on each side. The cleft was spanned by one solid slab of rock not more than two yards wide. It had neither railing nor other protection. The four leading priests marched out upon it one by one, and we followed. In the middle of the span they knelt. Ten feet beneath us was a torrent of blue sea-water, racing with prodigious speed between polished walls. It gave the impression of vast depth. It roared as it sped by, and far to the right was a low arch through which it disappeared. It was so swift that its surface shone like polished blue steel, and from it came the blessed, our-worldly, familiar ocean-breath that strengthened my soul amazingly and made me realize how earth-sick I was. Whence came the stream, I marveled, forgetting for the moment, as we passed on again, all else. Were we closer to the surface of earth than I had thought, or was this some mighty flood falling through an opening in sea-floor, heaven alone knew how many miles above us, losing itself in deeper abysses beyond these? How near and how far this was from the truth I was to learn, and never did truth come to man in more dreadful guise. The roaring fell away, the blue haze lessened. In front of us stretched a wide flight of steps, huge as those which had led us into the courtyard of Nantuach, through the ruined sea-gate. We scaled it, it narrowed. From above light poured through a still narrower opening. Side by side Larry and I passed out of it. We had emerged upon an enormous platform of what seemed to be glistening ivory. It stretched before us for a hundred yards or more, and then shelved gently into the white waters. Opposite, not a mile away, was that prodigious web of woven rainbows Rador had called the Veil of the Shining One. There it shone in all its unearthly grandeur, on each side of the Cyclopean pillars, as though a mountain should stretch up arms raising between them a fairy banner of auroral glories. Beneath it was the curved scimitar sweep of the pier with its clustered gleaming temples. Before that brief, fascinated glance was done, there dropped upon my soul a sensation as of brooding weight intolerable, 
a spiritual oppression as though some vastness was falling, pressing, stifling me. I turned, and Larry caught me as I reeled. "'Steady, steady, old man,' he whispered. At first all that my staggering consciousness could realize was an immensity, an immeasurable uprearing that brought with it the same throat-gripping vertigo as comes from gazing downward from some great height, then a blur of white faces, intolerable shinings of hundreds upon thousands of eyes, huge, incredibly huge, a colossal amphitheater of jet, a stupendous semicircle, held within its mighty arc the ivory platform on which I stood. It reared itself almost perpendicularly hundreds of feet up into the sparkling heavens, and thrust down on each side its ebon bulwarks, like monstrous paws. Now, the giddiness from its sheer greatness passing, I saw that it was indeed an amphitheater, sloping slightly backward tier after tier, and that the white blur of faces against its blackness the gleaming of countless eyes were those of myriads of the people who sat, silent, flower-garlanded, their gaze focused upon the rainbow curtain, and sweeping over me like a torrent, tangible, appalling. Five hundred feet beyond, the smooth, high-retaining wall of the amphitheatre raised itself, above it the first terrace of the seats, and above this, dividing the tiers for another half a thousand feet upward, set within them like a panel, was a dead-black surface in which shone faintly with a bluish radiance a gigantic disk. Above it and around it a cluster of innumerable smaller ones. On each side of me, bordering the platform, were scores of small pillared alcoves, a low wall stretching across their fronts, delicate fretted grills shielding them save where in each lattice an opening stared. It came to me that they were like those stalls in ancient Gothic cathedrals, wherein for centuries had kneeled paladins and people of my own race on earth's fair face. And within these alcoves were gathered, score upon score, the elfin beauties, the dwarfish men of the fair-haired folk. At my right, a few feet from the opening through which we had come, a passageway led back between the fretted stalls. Halfway between us and the massive base of the amphitheatre a dais rose. Up the platform to it a wide ramp ascended. And on ramp and dais and along the centre of the gleaming platform down to where it kissed the white waters, a broad ribbon of the radiant flowers lay like a fairy carpet. On one side of this dais, meshed in a silken web that hid no line or curve of her sweet body, white flesh gleaming through its folds, stood Yolara, and opposite her, crowned with a circlet of flashing blue stones, his mighty body stark bare, was Lugur. O'Keefe drew a long breath. Rador touched my arm, and still dazed, I let myself be drawn into the aisle and through a corridor that ran behind the alcoves. At the back of one of these the green dwarf paused, opened a door, and motioned us within. Entering, I found that we were exactly opposite where the ramp ran up to the dais, and that Yolara was not more than fifty feet away. She glanced at O'Keefe and smiled. Her eyes were ablaze with little dancing points of light, 
Her body seemed to palpitate, the rounded, delicate muscles beneath the translucent skin to run with joyful little eager waves. Larry whistled softly. "'There's Marikinov,' he said. I looked where he pointed. Opposite us sat the Russian, clothed as we were, leaning forward, his eyes eager behind his glasses. But if he saw us, he gave no sign. "'And there's Olaf,' said O'Keefe. Beneath the carved stall in which sat the Russian was an aperture, and within it was Huldrickson. Unprotected by pillars or by grills, opening clear upon the platform, near him stretched the trail of flowers up to the great dais which Lugor and Yolara the priestess guarded. He sat alone, and my heart went out to him. O'Keefe's face softened. "'Bring him here,' he said to Rador. The green dwarf was looking at the Norseman, too, a shade of pity upon his mocking face. He shook his head. "'Wait,' he said. "'You can do nothing now. And it may be there will be no need to do anything,' he added. But I could feel that there was little of conviction in his words. End of chapter 18